Hey everyone, welcome in to Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about the aftermath of the UAP Disclosure Act, the concept of the swarm from secret machines, and the darker aspects of Psy government programs. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. How's it going, man? Good, dude. It's been a crazy week. Yeah, it has. As most of you guys know by now, the UAP Disclosure Act was gutted pretty badly. They took out the eminent domain clause. And most importantly, the UAP uh, Records Review Board that was supposed to go and get all the records from each individual agency and review them and recommend uh, declassification uh, for the president to to execute. So that was one of the big deals that neuters the bill because it got taken out. They aren't going into the Department of Energy or the intelligence community in a way that is, you know, will be effective, that'll have actual teeth. They had subpoena power in the initial version of this bill. Now it's just telling, you know, the National Archives to basically go and get what they can. And uh, yeah, it's definitely not as comprehensive as we would have liked. Did you just watch David Grush, the video of him on, uh, what is it, News Nation? Yeah, he was pissed. <laughs> he was pissed, and uh, rightfully so. It's so, like, shameful how uh, this just kind of came and went. You know what I mean? Like, uh, people, like, they had built it up. It took so much to get these three people under oath and uh, in front of Congress. And, like, you saw the public's reaction. Like, the hall was filled with people before that hearing. And you know that people say it all the time that this is one of the number one things people write to their senators and representatives about. Something cool about this whole recent process, even though they gutted it, is that we now have seen these people vote on this topic. And I feel like that's very interesting. Are people going to pay attention to this, you think, when they vote? Because I kind of will. If they're willing to like stand in front of something that's blocking us answering very key questions like people like Tim Burchett said, we are looking for transparency and that we have a huge issue in transparency. I think people that listen to this podcast would agree <laughs> what we talk about constantly. A lot of the stuff like might be bunk that's put out there by God only knows who. A very interesting part of all this is that people are standing against transparency. I think it's going to kind of affect how people vote. That's my initial reaction, but might be an overreaction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, David Gresh himself said it was like the biggest failure in um, legislative history. So <laughs> I don't think uh, you're too far off from at least you know his sentiment on how this all panned out. Yeah, it's weird how all these roadblocks just keep popping up. And I think uh, Representative Jared Moskowitz said what piqued his curiosity the most was all the stonewalling that's happened at every single angle they've come at this from. Right. Yeah, it makes him really want to know what they're fucking hiding. And uh, it's definitely something. There's a there there. And it's hard to deny when you got Lockheed Martin and these other defense contractors coming in and basically stopping this bill and people kind of wonder and i hear it a lot is they ask why this bill could be stopped by just like four uh people in the house and you know a couple maybe allies of the senate or one ally in mitch mcconnell he'll he'll stop anything so the reason for that uh danny sheehan explained it is that these committees that have to draft and pass these things they're select committees so whoever is the the head of the committee can basically decide who's on and who's off the committee so if you want to be on the committee you got to go with what the chairman says uh basically so that's how they wield so much power and the fact that you know the guy with that power in the house uh at least for the intelligence committee his campaigns are very uh, heavily funded by companies like Lockheed Martin which are you know very present in his district it means a lot of people down the line of power need to toe the line that's kind of how it's turned into this four man show to stop this shit it's kind of upsetting how uh, the representatives of the people of the United States are going about handling things. And it's kind of a weird, it makes you kind of rethink the whole system, you know, when, when something like that can be abused to such a dramatic degree. 
oh yeah, it's bad right now. You're also expected to vote particular ways within your party. At the end of the day, this topic in particular, with how much time they had taken, how much effort they spent trying to like make it clear to the public that they were going to try their best to have a level of transparency on this topic. And at the last hour, they came out and like swept the rug out from under them. You know what I think is really telling? I just had this thought that this didn't happen with the UAP task force or the Aero bill. Uh, the defense lobbyists didn't, you know, pull out all the stops on those bills and look at look at what those bills have, have gotten us, which is like basically nothing. Yeah, so I guess they felt comfortable with those bills because they knew they wouldn't really go anywhere. This bill was a bit different because you had people like uh, David Grush and Carl Nell and probably Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon uh, helping to draft this legislation. You know, it defined non-human intelligence. It defined... Uh, legacy programs. That's probably what really freaked them out <laughs> was, was the definition of legacy programs. And um, well, mostly the eminent domain aspect probably did. But the fact that they didn't just get rid of that and got rid of the review board, I think says a lot because it's just documents, right? Like, what, like what's the big deal? Yeah, you say that now. But exactly. Like, the thing yeah. is, is like we have no, I hate to speculate because we have no, we truly have no idea. But that's what they've left us to do. We have no choice because they fucking right. killed this thing, you know? Right. The An interesting, I don't know, element to this is, how should I put it? The public needs to be aware, regardless if they gut that bill and change the structure of it to make it like less effective at the end of the day your voice matters like if you tell these people i'm not going to vote for you if you stand in the way of legislation like this if you call your senator and say that or whatever representative at whatever level make it if you feel like this that's something that you feel like is an important topic to you, like any other topic. So yeah, Commander Fravor, Ryan Graves, Dave Grush, all these guys are making it to where we as a public are allowed to talk about this topic at our dinner tables. You know what I mean? Like it's becoming yeah. a topic where it's not just like you're a lunatic if you bring it up. And in years past, it definitely was treated in that way. Culturally, we had come a long way, even in that past five, six years or so. The way it stands right now, the president can do a lot of interesting things with executive orders. And I'm curious to see if the public makes it clear that, that they're not happy with that. That's what Grush was saying in his interview was he's going to try to make a push to get the president to declassify the stuff or set up a review board uh, on his own. That would definitely be interesting. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a bummer that this got gutted, but... People just need to take a breath and maybe just chill out for a bit. And then it's time to get back on the saddle and fucking start fighting for this stuff again, because uh, there are definitely other avenues that we can pry more information out. I think this also legitimizes the study of it even more because uh, Grush was saying that he had Nobel uh, level scientists he was interviewing for this review board. If that was happening, then people are definitely interested in this at very high levels of academia. And he said he was also interviewing like high, high level military people as well. There's definitely people out there who, you know, would want to be on such a such a board as this, because this is definitely something that's going to make history once it comes out. And whoever's name is attached to it and the people on that board are going to be, you know, uh, remembered for a very long time. This other thing that came out today were these range fowler reports. Did you see range, that? Range fowler? Yeah, so like a range fowler is might be just a general military term for like an intrusion, basically an object intruding into uh, training airspace. So they had a bunch of these that were submitted to the UAP task force, and I believe uh, John Greenwald got them, published them on his website. There are about 100 of them. <laughs> they're all like totally redacted, obviously. And there's really not much in there. But there were a couple interesting things I wanted to get your thoughts on. Yeah, I'm looking for them right now. Range Fowlers, you said. Yeah, I posted them. Yeah, this one I found really interesting. Maybe it's a coincidence. Yeah, I'll just read it real quick. Okay. Uh, so the Range Fowler appeared stationary, received contact, redacted, ran an intercept on the object, pilot saw it first time, and conducted a second pass. Pilot saw it a second time. 
The third pass, both pilot and weapon systems officer saw stable contact, but was stationary. But when air crew scanned the surface of the water underneath the object, they discovered a pod of whales. Whales? Yeah, so there's just a pot of whales chilling out under the stationary <laughs> UFO. Uh, what does that bring to mind to you? Do you think there's significance there or just a coincidence? Dude, I was talking about that the other day. What was the show called? It was called Unidentified, right? Yeah. Okay, so Unidentified, if you watch that show, there's an episode where Luis Elizondo and Sean Cahill. I'm talking about when they were talking to the shark guy. It was, I remember it was the West Coast because it related to that Tic Tac encounter, which was also in those waters, right? So they're talking to this gentleman and he is explaining what he sees in the water, explaining like that sharks gather in this particular spot in the water for some reason. They were, they were very interested in that guy's opinion because he was just trying to do his job. Like it was very clear when he was giving his testimony, this guy was not trying to get rich and famous to fucking appease (laughs) the UFO buffs. Like he could give a fuck. He was like, I look for sharks. This is what I've seen. I remember them making it one of the points that they were trying to emphasize is that that particular spot where these sharks were gathering may be special in some way that we don't fully grasp. Really? Um, now I have to rewatch it to make sure I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> maybe completely... we should like watch it right now. I, that's crazy. I don't know. I I just really liked that show and feel like people didn't watch it at all. Know, <laughs> like nobody right? watches a read. I watched it and I don't fucking remember. So even <laughs> secret machines, people don't even read it. They're just like, well, what, what's in it? I'm like, wait, just go read. Why should I trust Lou Elizondo? <laughs> uh, have you seen his show? No, it's on History Channel. All right, fuck that. <laughs> okay. Uh, come back later when you actually know what you're talking about. Yeah, man, that's wild. We definitely have to rewatch that. Maybe do a whole episode on it. Well, what were the whales doing? That sorry to cut you off. Nothing. Like, well, nothing. Well, not nothing. They uh, they didn't say. <laughs> it was redacted. <laughs> <laughs> so redacting whales. So I don't know if you remember. A few weeks ago, I was talking about uh, that UFO podcast episode where Dan Zetterstrom interviews Doctor Michelle Fournay. Uh, She was a marine ecologist, and she studied the impact of anthropogenic noise on animal behavior and uh, interspecies interactions and how they manifest acoustically. Yeah, she's basically like decoding whale songs. I find it pretty interesting that Lou Elizondo asked a question specifically during this episode, and he asked about nonverbal communication. It's interesting that he would say that on that UFO podcast about whales and also do that episode down in Baja, I guess it is, where yeah, the sharks were all congregating. Did he say like UFOs were congregating there? Like, what did, oh, yeah. Do you remember what he said? That guy. So they were trying to make sure that they weren't just seeing, I think it's called bioluminescence. Yeah, when right. the water is like shimmery and people that look at the water at night know what I'm talking about. Like there, there's certain times when the water can give the appearance that like it's shimmering in a special way, but it's not. It's just like a natural biological process. They were checking with this guy. And they were trying to, like, make sure that the stories they were getting from people in this area weren't just people mistaking people on a little John boat or bioluminescence or some type of stupid jellyfish or electric eel. Like, they were trying to narrow down to make sure that, like, okay, someone's reporting (laughs) a giant glowing ball of light (laughs) and it wasn't any of these other things. And the guy's like, no. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, Hanging I don't out. Know. So basically the the UFOs were hovering over sharks. Is that kind of the idea? Not necessarily. See, now I want to rewatch it to make sure I'm like getting it spot, right. right. But the that's what I got from it. I don't want to say like the animals know what's going on because like that's not <laughs> that's not what I think. I think the animals are responding. The dogs can sense the fucking <laughs> alien, like a super eight. You ever seen that? That was a good movie. 
No. You haven't seen Super 8? Dude, you gotta no. watch that shit. Oh my God, so good. The, uh, Sorry, go ahead. How, oh yeah, I think it's inaccurate when people are like, the animals know what's going on. I think the animals, I'm going to sound like Richard Dawkins, the animals have evolved through natural selection over billions and billions of years, just as we have, to respond to certain things a certain way. When we see animals behaving or congregating in certain areas, you hear that like when the cows all start laying down that like something's about to happen or the dogs start running down the street exactly that's not a real thing i'm trying think. to i'm trying to think of different um the birds <laughs> yeah another, <laughs> i'm trying to think like specific animals i don't quite think it's accurate to say like the animals know what's going on i think that the animals are responding to their natural instincts that have evolved while the earth is a certain way. I think the earth is slowly shifting, regardless of your belief system. I think that everyone can agree that things are out of balance right now. The point I'm trying to make is like animals behaving a strange way isn't surprising to me, given how drastically like our planet has just like become so toxic for them. I'm not surprised that animals are behaving strangely like birds on our beaches used to be like you would see seagulls and they would be eating the little small fish. Now there's barely any little small fish. Yeah. And then there's fucking Shamu ramming boats in the Strait of uh, Gibraltar like taking out boats and sinking them like orca whales yeah man they're like pissed off there's like reports of that in the past year like three four different times these orcas are like training themselves to take down uh yachts pretty much it's wild the whales were training not training they were they were learning i guess it's a new thing they do because i don't know seems like they're pissed did you watch blackfish that was the documentary about sea world and they talked about that whale Tilly come and Tilly come uh, attacked this woman and I think killed her. It was horrible. Those whales are so, their brains are so big. When you watch blackfish and you have a grasp like anybody can see it doesn't take a genius that the whales are just so sad. I bet you their nervous systems are evolved to a point that we don't even fully grasp. Because the way they communicate with each other is, I feel like, very not the way I would expect animals with the brains as big as theirs to act. Well, it makes you wonder if there is something to whales or any sort of sea animal, sea mammal specifically, being attracted to or curious about areas where UFOs are. It kind of makes you wonder if there is some sort of, you know, electromagnetic thing that they sense that they use for migration or something like that, where they would, you know, sense whatever signal is coming from the craft and gravitate towards it for whatever reason, maybe instinct, maybe curiosity. Have you ever seen the fossils of prehistoric whales? Uh, not lately. So prehistoric whales, if you look at their fossils, people have to remember that like all of the mammals that live in the sea at one point had made their way out of the water Internally, their lungs began breathing air instead of using gills or some other way. It's like it's a very gradual process, but the fact that they were able to make it onto land and breathe air is pretty interesting. And prehistoric whales, you can see they have like these crude little crappy legs, like back legs. For whatever reason, it became evolutionarily advantageous for their offspring to end up back in the water. And maybe like grazing around in the water and spending a lot of time in the water. And then very slowly, they became all of the marine mammals that we see today. But yeah, that's like a fun fact about prehistoric whales is that they have like little crappy hind legs. And you can see fossil evidence of that as well. Aquaman. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, man. Whales are, are some shit. I always enjoy watching whales. Whale watching. All right. Uh, have you ever seen whales in San Diego? It might have been Hawaii where I saw whales. Yeah, I did see whales in, in Hawaii. Up close? Uh, on a whale watching boat. So however close that is. Nice. That's close as fuck, dude. Yeah, it's pretty close. Well, that's the same trip. I um, The dolphins came and swam around us. So that, that kind of took precedent when it comes to memories. But yes, I, I did see whales. What Do you remember what kind of whales? 
Um, I don't know, big. I don't know. I don't remember specifically. Uh, I, I'd have to call my aunt or something. Well, whichever they were, I I've heard stories. I haven't came that close. Like I've been to SeaWorld and stuff, but that's nothing to brag about. If you see blackfish, <laughs> the blackfish, and, <laughs> blackfish inspired you to go to SeaWorld. <laughs> I went before I saw blackfish, and then after I saw, I haven't been back. So you watch blackfish, and you get like all pumped up on SeaWorld. Like <laughs> so psychopaths. <laughs> so from what I hear, stories of people who go whale watching. I don't know the right word. I don't want to say they feel like they telepathically communicated with the whale, but they felt like the whale was connecting with them. Yeah, that's how I felt about the dolphins. Really? Dolphins are super smart, too. I told that story on the podcast. They've made like eye contact and it's like they're peering into your fucking soul, basically. It's crazy. That's intense. Yeah, I think I was hungover. When uh, <laughs> we went whale watching, so I wasn't feeling too telepathic at the time. These um, whales were like, "What is up with yeah, this, this guy? guy sucks!" <laughs> and everyone's like pissed off; they're not seeing any whales. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, another one of these range Fowler reports is interesting for a different reason. It, it's kind of crazy how they just put this shit out there for like you know, and they redact it, and the conspiracy theories it forms when you try to fill in the blanks is like so much worse than just telling us what the fuck's going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's so annoying. But uh, this one's fun. So again, these are reports that are sent in to, well, these ones were sent in specifically to the UAP task force. So this one was stationary as well. And this sentence kind of got to me. I don't want to get your thoughts on it. It says, upon the redacted getting closer to the object, the pilot and the weapons systems officer both became redacted. I'm not sure what that means. Judging from basic sentence structure and context clues, it affected something physically with within the pilot and the and the WSO. Otherwise, like what what do you think that means? Like is it like a black strip? Like is it one yeah. word? Is it something that's like a short word or can you uh, it looks like it's a long word. It's one long word, it looks like. Or three short words. So they became blank, blank, blank. Yeah, yeah someone said like it's like fucking UFO Mad Libs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the most logical one that I saw someone suggest was uh, disoriented. No, it's not no. what it was. No. <laughs> so I'm what just was kidding. it? I don't know. Garrett? <laughs> I, don't, I feel like... Uh, it's so hard to speculate. Maybe I it was know, that. man. This is the problem. So, are range fowlers something that uh, Ryan Graves talks about a lot? Yep. Because I yep. keep hearing him mentioned in this Black Vault article. Oh, really? I don't want to talk about the article. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need the analysis from fucking John Greenwald. Like, I'm, I'm good. Like, stick with the FOIA. But um, yeah, man. I don't know. I just found that interesting. I think we need to unredact this shit because it's ridiculous. Do you know how many things get classified top secret? I think the number that I read recently was over 16 million things a year. That's so many things. On this topic, I feel like there is no above. We're human beings. If it involves a non-human intelligence. There's just assholes. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the humanistic element to it. To me, there is no above each other if we're talking about non-human intelligence. Yeah. And I think some of it, it's way more dark than most people would like to think. Yeah, I wrote an article. I published it, I think, yesterday. And it dives into the fucking space kids again. Uh, <laughs> beating that dead horse. But I really, really went into it. There's a couple things I wanted to bring up, particularly from Secret Machines, if you're cool with that. Yeah, hell yeah. So I made some connections that I hadn't really thought of before. One of the plot lines in the second fiction book, these... Um, military men alan who's a pilot and his his best friend from childhood both ended up working at uh dreamland or you know area 51 in one of the chapters towards the beginning of the book they start to reminisce about this weird doctor who used to show up you know give them injections or um treat them for something turns out they didn't have <laughs> when uh tamika who's another character in the book, she goes to uh, Barry's parents' house and starts asking about uh, this doctor that, that they had been talking about. Essentially comes away 
with the fact that they didn't have the diseases they were reported to have. So she wanted to know what what that doctor was doing specifically. You know, they wouldn't tell her, so they kicked her out of the house. So obviously there was something up with that doctor. So Tamika calls her friend, who's a fellow researcher. They run a website together. Her friend, whose name is Marvin, fills her in on what is called the Science Applications International Corporation, or SAIC, which is a real defense contractor. And I think the only one that, that Tom actually names in, in this, these books is, uh, is SAIC. Yeah, and he talks about it all the time. Yeah. And he brings them up as the company that has the Atlanteans holding pyramids outside of their headquarters. That's yep. who we're talking about right now. So what he says, I'll just read from this really quick. Marvin on the phone call tells her in 2009, Tyson's Corner, Virginia, became home to the Science Applications International Corporation. It's part think tank, part R&D corporation, emphasizing information technology with fingers in various military pies, including intelligence and engineering. They and the related Litos Corporation have contracts with the NSA, Homeland Security, and the works. Billions of dollars worth. They recently absorbed Lockheed Martin's information systems and global solutions business. Heavy stuff. Seriously heavy stuff. According to this document I'm reading now, SAIC adopted a matrix operating model in which different service lines collaborate to serve a given contract. One-stop shopping for the military and intelligence services. They do it all. Physical tech, personnel, information systems, and intelligence gathering. Connections all the way up the chain of command. You better hope these folks are on your side. Tamika asks, but when Barry and Alan were kids, it would have been different, right? Yeah, says Marvin. These places tend to stay in the DoD family. Whatever it was then, I'll bet it involved intelligence and technology, probably experimental. That section is referring to research that Marvin was doing on this doctor, uh, whose name is Dr. Vespasian, I believe is how you pronounce it. So later in the story, I'll just read a bit more of it. Tamika hadn't understood much of what Vespasian, Badgered, and Weary had confessed about the artificial modification of codons and amino acids in the human genetic code. The doctor had tossed the terms out scornfully, knowing they wouldn't mean much to the layman. All that stuff about CRISPR uh, in Cas9 that had been intended to obscure rather than explain. But Barry had worried at him like a dog with a chew toy until Vespasian had used less opaque but rather more troubling terms like targeted genome editing. The Chinese were doing it, he said, as if this made everything okay. It was a huge leap forward, a monumental progression in molecular biology with all manner of applications, a field in which he had been an unsung pioneer. But what it all added up to, Tamika was still unsure. He had tweaked people's genetic code, rewritten the building blocks of their humanity. But what he had achieved in the process or why he had done it, he couldn't or wouldn't say. What can you do? He said, what triggered the change? Barry said nothing. While the doctor wouldn't give up anything further, he left with a look of almost serene triumph on his face. He didn't know what he had done. So essentially, there was this targeted genome editing that was going on when, when these two boys were kids by this Air Force doctor, uh, Dr. Vespasian. Tyson's Corner, they mentioned that several times, that that was the location that Dr. Vespasian was coming, coming from. That was the location of Sake's uh, remote viewing program, was that office, Tyson's Corner. So with Tom mentioning Sake... And these experiments being performed on these children by a doctor who was located in the same office as the real world uh, remote viewing program, I thought was interesting. Think about it, dude. We've been talking about it. This this isn't something that just kind of like sprung out of nowhere, right? Like yeah. we were talking about guys like Andrea Puharik. He reportedly had his own little school. I think it was in Austining, New York. That's part of my article, too. I okay. added him in there. Nice, dude. He was involved with a lot of this weird shit. Yeah, I did a bit more digging. So I got a trial for newspapers.com this week while I was writing the article and figured I'd just search for SAIC articles that you know might give me some insight into some of this stuff. What actually proved to be much more interesting than any of the articles was their job ads, like in the classifieds of all these newspapers back in the 90s. They were recruiting for certain positions in the newspapers like they used to do basically all the time. There are a few in there that are pretty fascinating and kind of concerning, to be honest. And I was looking through them in the November 6, 1994 Atlanta Journal. 
there was a job ad put in there uh, for SAIC under the section uh, social workers and the job title is labeled counselors. And it says, uh, SAIC specializes in providing counseling services internationally. We are currently recruiting for adolescent counselors for assignment in Germany. Interesting, right? It's only a matter of time before, what's his name, Scott Andrews? Yeah, he's in the article too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I throw him in. Why would a defense contractor it's so be weird. recruiting for social workers to help with adolescents in Germany and say they specialize in counseling services? It's a defense contractor. Like, what? what is that? What year did SAIC start? It was 1969. 69? Yeah, it was founded by a, uh, I think is John Baster, B-E-Y-S-T-R, I believe his name is. He was a Navy guy, and he worked at Los Alamos uh, National Laboratory starting in the 50s. So what else did you find out about SAIC? Like, was it a particular pocket of years that you were looking for? Or is this since its inception, it's been involved with like... Uh, just the 90s. The 90s. Another ad I found for SAIC under the section Early Childhood Special Educators. And it says, uh, SAIC is the nation's largest employee-owned high technology and health sciences firm. With annual revenues in excess of $2.4 billion, the company and its subsidiaries have more than 24,000 employees at offices in 150 cities. Currently, we are seeking childhood special educators to work with American families and their children with developmental delays in Europe, Iceland, and Korea. What the fuck? <laughs> what do you think they were doing? I don't know, man. I don't, I don't understand this at all. All right, well, let's rewind a little bit. The thing, when I hear SAIC, in my head, I go, oh, that's where Joe McMonagle went after they canned all this government involvement on an official basis with remote viewing because he was remote viewer 001. In Secret Machines, Dr. Vespasian is a doctor who works at SAIC at the Tyson's Corner SAIC office where the real-life remote viewing programs were run out of. In Secret Machines as well, Barry, the you know one of the kids who was experimented on with this, with this gene editing stuff, when he learns about this or he comes to a realization about what was really happening back then, he's not mad about it. He's actually like kind of like cool about it and curious, more curious than like upset that they had done this to him. And that kind of seems like what you were talking about with um, Jack Sarfati, how he felt about it. Even in uh, Stranger Things, the papa comes back and he's like basically tries to save everyone. Like he's a hero at the end. You know what I'm thinking about is X-Men. Yeah, that too. How they how they treat it in X-Men is like, you are a mutant, but you are a gifted child. Yeah. And you get to come to the secret school. So these ads for like adolescent specialists, like these are a few other ads for SEIC that are recruiting experts in these fields. First one is human engineering. That That is crazy. <laughs> Man-machine interfaces, kinetic energy weapons, fighter pilot training systems, image understanding, laser hardened materials evaluation, hospital system installers, organized crime law enforcement, and international travel supervisors. So those are a few interesting ones that, that were also in the newspapers I was researching. It, it's a lot of circumstantial evidence that otherwise would never be tied together if it wasn't for like secret machines or potentially the Scott Andrews stories. Also, Pasolka talks about her colleague who went into these special education, not special education, but like gifted and talented programs where right. she learned later that like a bunch of the other people who were in these programs had died. You know, and then Gordon Cooper, like you were saying, Andrea Puhark. Yeah, man, it's wild. There is a lot of this kind of stuff like cropping up everywhere right now, at least for me in my research. It would seem to be something that, yeah, they would want to hide. Just to be clear, SAIC is a defense contractor in a private company. We This is an important distinction I think we should point out for people who listen to this show or just people who are curious about these sorts of things, is that one of the ways that people use the proverbial they, like they're trying to keep it secret, they don't want you to know, and they could be all sorts of things. We were trying to like kind of chisel this down, and we were talking about how with the church committee ending MKUltra 
the CIA had like in an official capacity stopped this unethical, weird, out of control program of MK Ultra, right? And now if you listen to a lot of like conspiracy theorists, they will point at the CIA and they'll be like, they're doing all sorts of stuff. Like I've seen them accuse literally anything that you can think of that goes wrong. There are people that will point at the CIA and be like, they did this. I bet you it's an honor to work in the CIA. You know what I mean? Like I people that make conspiracies about government agencies, I feel like is kind of lame. If you unless you have evidence, if you have evidence, it's a whole other story. But like otherwise, when I hear someone worked for the CIA, I think that's kind of an honorable thing. I agree. So I, I hope people don't get that twisted. And that doesn't mean that if the CIA did something unethical or like unconstitutional that I'm like standing by them hell or high water. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like... Yeah, I've said it before. It's the best cover to have people blame the whole agency. Exactly. And I think that is what I think is happening right now. I think that people are pointing at the CIA or agencies like the CIA or the NSA or whoever and... In all honesty, I bet a lot of that type of testing, if anyone is willing to like get into the weeds of that type of thing, it would be a private company. Now, I'm not necessarily saying it's SAIC, but a lot of those newspaper clippings were really Tom is pretty like, pretty straight I mean, yeah, up. Tom, Tom doesn't give a shit. Tom DeLong is like, yep, it's them. This book is fiction, but like wink wink. Here's the exact name and everything they do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was the basis for this. Like, I, you know, I wouldn't have written this article if like it wasn't so direct, you know? And if I hadn't found those ads or had the rest of the connected evidence or testimony, yeah, corroboration, it just all came together. So um, I wrote about it. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not like accusing. I'm just tying shit together. What do you think SAIC knows? Uh, Well, Bobby Rayenman, who was on the board forever, definitely knew about UFOs, his conversation with Bob Oshler. I'll reference Secret Machines again because the idea is that their DNA was messed with somehow with something. The technology basically epigenetically activated or brought to the surface psi abilities. You know something I just thought of when it when it comes to this? I mean, it's just something that's kind of self-evident. But we were talking about Joe McMonagall and the fact that he went to go work for SAIC. Like, there's documentation. And I think he doesn't hide the fact that he's worked for them. You know, like in interviews, I don't know if he talks about working for SAIC. I've for sure seen documentation and me and you have exchanged with each other. This guy went to go work for this company. He was one of the Army's supposed best remote viewers. An interesting thing about Joe McMonagall, do you know what he ended up doing later in his life? I don't know if he still does this to this day, but like where he was real involved with? The stock market. (laughs) (laughs) You would think. The Monroe Institute. Oh, right. In Virginia. He became like... I don't want to say like the president, I would have to look in what his exact role was, but he took like a prominent role in this place called the Monroe Institute that all throughout the 80s, our army was like sending particular people there to receive training. And they're all into this process they call hemisync, where, or uh, what is it, binaural beats is what they call it, where they like try to awaken both hemispheres in your brain and stimulate an out of body experience or stimulate that type of uh, brain function where you can like access different parts of your consciousness. Well, anyway, the, p- the point I'm trying to make is that I think that involvement with guys like Joe McMonagall in the Monroe Institute, and and if you listen to some of his speeches and read his books, he talks about UFOs occasionally, and he talks about remote viewing UFO. uh, He said he was on a crash retrieval team for a private contractor. (laughs) So maybe we should listen to Joe McMonagall, (laughs) you know, like, uh, and and if, and playing devil's advocate, if Joe McMonagall is lying about these things for some particular reason, I think that would be just as intriguing. But I don't think that's the case, quite frankly. I think that whatever remote viewing is or why Joe McMonagall is exceptional at it has something to do with consciousness. And SAIC seems very interested in consciousness is my takeaway from a lot of this. And 
that was the buzzword that Tom DeLong intrigued a lot of these advisors with. Yeah, it right. seemed to impress them was he said consciousness and he kept bringing up and harping on consciousness being a big element to what UFOs are. And I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I just wanted to read a uh, part of the transcript I, I wrote down from Grush's Rogan interview. I just wanted to read a section of Grush's uh, Rogan interview that I transcribed where he's talking about uh, remote viewing documents in the CIA, CIA reading room. Grush says there were CIA documents about consciousness and weird remote viewing stuff besides the Stargate program that were released in the FOIA reading room on the CIA's website that were pretty trippy. It's like, wow, the CIA is looking into some really interesting stuff. They're hardcore intel. What's going on there? Rogan says uh, they would kind of have to find out if that was bullshit or not. You can't ignore that if you were really doing your job, if your job is intelligence. And Grush replies, or it's an aspect of the phenomenon because it's like a reach out from the crash retrieval program. It's like, hey, I need you to look into some weird stuff because it might be the key to unlock something that we've got in the warehouse. Grush in that interview, is, he's implying that these psi programs were initiated basically to reach out to crash retrieval programs because that is how you pilot these things. Grush said that on Rogan, and I don't think many people caught that. That's another link there that's very, very recent by someone who is at the fucking tip of the spear on this thing. And willing to go under oath. Yeah, fucking for real. I hope you can talk more about that because he said he's, he's writing an op-ed. It's coming out in a few weeks, so that should definitely be interesting. And one last thing on this is uh, Gordon Cooper on Coast to Coast, I think in the year 2000, he did an interview where he talked about the Space Kids, like NASA mind control program is how he described it. It was about like remote viewing and, and psi phenomena and that kind of thing. And so this is what he said on, on Coast to Coast. Uh, the study groups included speed reading lessons that enabled students to comprehend entire passages of English at a simple glance. The use of learning machines to teach them vast amounts of information, advanced memory training and card games and situational exercises involving clairvoyance and seminars and the guided imagination that forms the basis of remote viewing. It is believed that NASA's mind control program was directed at preparing children who would later be able to communicate with the non-human intelligent species that humanity might encounter in space. So this is the important part. The accounts of some individuals suggest that in some cases, the children involved were given drugs to enhance memory and learning and were physically spun on tabletop-like devices to induce the altered state of consciousness associated with OBEs, or out-of-body experiences, which is exactly what Robert Bigelow talked about in his interview with uh, Jeffrey Mischlov about um, an Air Force officer basically going, going in a centrifuge and uh, spinning around and hitting like crazy amounts of Gs and basically following his body down a hallway as he floated above it. Yeah, that connection with Bigelow's story, uh, I thought was, uh, yeah, wild. I had something I wanted to ask you. Uh, I found a weird article that uh, uh, there's a smart toilet with four cameras uh, that can identify users of the toilet based on their anal print. What's your anal print? Is that like the way your butthole is wrinkled? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's wild. Your butthole is wrinkled. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, that's not what I wanted to ask you. I just want to know what you think about this. Okay. Um, so basically, archaeologists have discovered two temples, one buried atop the other in the ancient city of Girzu in Iraq. So they found two temples, one built on top of the other. The older one was a Sumerian temple. There was a Hellenistic temple built on top of that that was connected to Hercules and Alexander the Great. So it was clearly a very significant spot. The civilization that was there after the Sumerians took it to mean they built a temple on top of it. So I thought it was cool. I'm trying to remember. It, it wouldn't be the names that you would expect, but I was listening to a lecture by scientists and they were talking about the origins of religion and the origins of civilization, etc. They were branching back and they made it all the way to the uh, Romans and then they crept back a little more into the Greeks and then they crept back even more and they ended up at Mesopotamia and Sumer. And they explained that like a lot of the Greek myth that we understand was borrowed from the Sumerian myth. That was like the original, to my understanding, that was like the first civilization was in Sumer. 
then religions following them kind of modeled a lot of their, you know, like the, the way that they build their uh, like panel of gods was very similar to the way they had it in Mesopotamia. And right. then there was like a, a more substantial shift to monotheism. And now we have the religions that we have today where a lot of people just believe in one God. 2000 years ago, someone in ancient Greece would absolutely believe in and worship their assortment of gods, just the same way that someone believes in Jesus today. But like a lot of these things branching back further and further ended up originating from Mesopotamia. Like the stories are similar. Some things change, but like a lot of them in the particular like roles each particular god play in their worship are very fascinating and they have a lot of fascinating stories in the sumerian myth about wars between the gods i don't know if we've ever discussed on our show enlil and inki but like that's very similar to the prometheus and zeus battle that we've discussed there's also like classes of the sumerian gods but Phil Corso talked about it, I think, when that recent George Knapp, uh, Jeremy Corbell thing that they released, like the audio clips of him. The, he talks about how the lower rank deities are called the Igigi, I believe. And uh, they talk about in the myth of Atrahasis, uh, which is their flood myth. Have it here. I don't want to include this quote. It's so fucking okay. why I hate saying Anunnaki <laughs> or and I'd never even want to say that word because it spins <laughs> people spin that shit. Yeah. Zachariah Sitchin took it a whole other fucking way to the way their little myths tell. But it talks about how there's like a lower rank group called the Igigi. The Igigi are toiling in fields and how gods are saying that human beings are too noisy and that like human beings were created as slaves to serve the lazy gods were almost the result of a battle between groups of whatever these things were or are. So is this like proof or some sort of indication that the Greek gods were essentially based on Sumerian gods? No, it's not because I feel like proof. My standard, it would def- it would depend how you define proof. Is it circumstantial evidence that supports that. I don't know. I hate to say that civilizations just like reuse gods and that like, and I know some gods literally are other gods, like the Greek and the Roman Apollo are Apollo. But like, there's ones where people will be like, "Did you know the Egyptian Hanum is fucking?" Also, the Babylonian, you'll be like, no, dude, like some people just take it to a whole other level of saying that they're all exactly like cookie cutter the same. If you read John Keel's The Eighth Tower, he talks about the Greek historian Herodotus because he's talking about the Tower of Babel, or at least what was he believed the people in that area thought was the Tower of Babel. So this is what John Keel writes In chapter three of the eighth tower, he says, I once dragged my hungry, impoverished carcass across the desert of Iraq to the place that was Babylonia to gaze upon the wall where the moving finger once wrote and to stand before a pile of rubble that was once supposedly the Tower of Babel. Herodotus, a writer who visited the same place in 460 B.C., described it like this. A solid tower was constructed, one stadium about 20 yards in length and one stadium in width. Upon this tower stood another, and again upon this another and so on, making eight towers in all. In the topmost tower, there is a great bed richly appointed and beside it a golden table. No one spends the night there save a woman designated by the god himself. The priest told me that the god descended sometimes to the temple and joined her. I cannot believe this, end quote. Then Kiel goes, obviously Herodotus didn't know much about horny gods. They were begetting all over the place. Every culture developed rites and practices designed to feed beautiful young virgins to sex-crazed gods. The universality of these off-color myths and bizarre sacrifices should give us pause and make us ask if perhaps there wasn't some grain of truth to them. The Babylonians believed strongly enough in superhuman sex practices to expend their time 
effort, and valuable raw materials in the construction of that cosmic trysting place, stocking it with gold furniture. Similar towers or step pyramids were constructed all over the world. They can be found in China, Mexico, South America, Northern Europe even on remote Pacific islands. Usually a temple or special chamber sat on their summits. Were these, like the Tower of Babylon, used for cosmic seductions? The widespread use of gold in religious artifacts may be of special significance. Gold is a useless metal. It is too soft to be used in tools or cookware. It is also rare and difficult to mine and extract, especially for primitive peoples. But from the earliest times, gold was regarded as a sacred metal, and men who encountered gods were ordered to supply it. Over and over again, the Bible tells us how men were instructed to create solid gold objects and leave them on mountaintops where the gods would get them. The gods were gold hungry, but why? Something that stuck out to me in that story is he's talking about exploring Iraq. This is the region that we're talking about. Since day one, these myths bizarrely mention human beings and something else commingling with each other. I made it a point in that first Substack post that I wrote and that this is something that you see in the Greek myth, like is commonplace. And that's even in the Bible when they talk about the sons of God. And I'm not, I'm not a believer in any of these myths. And I already feel uncomfortable talking about them. People can feel very attacked when you examine some of these stories in that way. But that's why I'm real interested to read books of people like Diana Pasolka that are religious studies professors and they're like trying to give this UFO topic a modern day examination. And they're kind of like, or Brent Lundau, that was another guy that we've seen that's like kind of putting it on the line of like what he believes these stories to say. I have no reason to think that either of those people are trying to mislead folks. Like, I think they're truly giving like a fresh interpretation of like, a lot of these religions that say similar things, but people are real nervous to explore because like we were talking about this on the phone earlier, how like people are raised. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion at the dinner table or don't talk about it in general. It's kind of bad manners to discuss certain things. And nowadays people will talk about We have a podcast about this shit. We'll talk <laughs> about true. it every day. So like, uh, I think that's something that's just very, it's a very shocking thing culturally for people that young people don't really grasp, I don't think. Not saying we're not young, just saying like the younger, younger people that grew up like since the day they were born, they had the internet. I feel like so foreign to them. Um, speaking of gods banging each other. Yes. Probably my favorite part of any of those books. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh yeah, I posted a picture. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. It was a 4th century BC pottery painting of Pasiphae. Is that how you say it? What what culture? Uh, the queen of Crete, goddess of witchcraft and sorcery. In the picture, she is nursing a baby minotaur. And it's some of the scariest shit I've ever seen. A straight up like cartoon. Like, what is this about? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's like a cartoon of like a bull-headed baby with muscles. Actually, it looks like he has tits, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. What's that about? Is that real? Like, is that real life? <laughs> I don't. Oh, my God. That's a lot. You know who I would show that to is uh, that author Marco Visconti. Well, the first thing I think of when I see a bull with breasts is the Baphomet. There's a whole like stripe of uh, people who call themselves Thelemites, I think would be the term. And they're people who are like devotees to Aleister Crowley. And Aleister Crowley would write about like, this is my problem I have with like trying to like say that all these things equal each other. It's because I don't think this has anything to do with anything Aleister Crowley was talking about. Anyway, I thought that was a wild picture. <laughs> well, it makes you think like when you see the uh, hybrids of things, that shit is always weird. Like you'll see like a god with like bird legs. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> what does that mean? Clearly the idea of a hybrid with a non-human 
animal, I guess, or just a non-human species has been around forever. I don't know if that's how I look at it. I, I, I see that if someone makes that argument, 100% feel like that argument holds water. But like, So what's the alternative? I think that that initial Sumer civilization was contact. And everything, your quote unquote contact, like some advanced something landed on Earth, fiddled with some things. It, it, the, the way the Sumerian gods are portrayed, it definitely seems like some of them have like a very scientific role that carries on into other myths. I don't want to be too long winded, but essentially I think that whatever happened in Sumer and spurred all of this knowledge and all of uh, like they they were super advanced uh, in astronomy. They they mapped the entire solar system. I think that whatever that civilization was, was the one that was touched by this this particular I would call it an NHI. And I think that everything thereafter is our little cargo cult way of trying to like piece that event together. The stories that we hear about Sumer and their gods and their kings and rulers and the fact that a lot of myths thereafter are borrowing from those stories. I think what Tom DeLonge and Peter Lavenda say about cargo cults, when I hear the Sumerian stories you know, like I think that religion is the baby of that dilemma of people trying to explain these feelings. I think that's how we ended up with religion. Jacques Vallée mentions when he's talking about how whatever uh, UFOs are, one aspect of them is that they appear to be like a teaching system. He was talking about uh, Skinner and his like learning and teaching methods. And he was saying how like, or if you reward a student constantly, then they get a bit lazy. I'm paraphrasing, but he was saying when you make the reward system more uh, sporadic and unpredictable, that can produce all sorts of weird behaviors by the subject trying to get this result. I heard a biologist point that out. They were talking about how uh, they would do this to pigeons and they would feed the pigeons sporadically and the pigeons would start to think that like the little ritual that they did, like three pecks at the hole and like two scratches, that would be what they needed to do to make more food come out. Oh, I hope I'm scary. explaining this okay. But like the pigeons would start guessing and doing little like rituals well, it's and like repeating Pavlovian them. Kind yeah. Of. And then when they would get food, they would think that they were correct and they would just continue to build on that. I hope that I explained that okay. Uh, it's like but, training training a dog. It's uh, odd. So I think that's kind of like what humans are doing with religion. I think that we see that there's this like technology. We're just a dog doing fucking tricks and seeing what works to get the treat. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's pretty much how I how I see. Some My dog of this. does that all the time. Like she'll do <laughs> she'll like just do every trick she knows. Like if she's too excited, she'll just like. And be like, no, like, you know, sit. If we don't give her a command, she'll just do every trick. But it's kind of scary to think about. Yeah. So this is like one of the leading explanations for uh, the Minotaur. Scholar uh, argues that the Minotaur is the result of ancient people trying to explain earthquakes. He points out the carbon dating of marine fossils attached at the boulders that were ejected from the ocean by ancient tsunamis indicates the region was tectonically very active during the years when the Minotaur myth first appeared. Given this, he argues that the Minoans used the monster to help explain the terrifying earthquakes that were bellowing beneath their feet. It just sounds so stupid to me, but whatever. <laughs> I don't know. They talk a lot about bees in Crete. Yeah. Or wasps. Do you know which were important to them or why the swarm yeah so this is where it all kind of comes together and tom refers to it as insect like whatever the change is in their blood that gives them this kind of telepathic uh hive mind type connection with each other where they can hear each other's thoughts and all this stuff this is what they write in the second book of secret machines and her 
uh, genetic code was altered by whatever that is. And then, yeah, the Dr. Vespasian from SAIC uh, was was artificially injecting whatever this was through targeted genome editing into um, Barry and Alan when they were kids. Uh, this is one of the you know excerpts from towards the end of the book, basically. They were bonded. The stone had not just given them unusual insights and abilities. It had connected them because that was how it or whatever had been using it, manipulating it, understood communication. The swarm. They did not talk to individuals. They did not recognize the single, the solitary consciousness. They sought connection and unity because that was what they were. That was how they were seeking to shape humanity. But in the process, they had given a gift to Nicholas, to Alan, to Mika, Barry, and Jennifer. They had inadvertently bound them to each other, let them into their different minds, conscious and subconscious. Somehow, through the stone or the craft, Alan flew, or something more basic and essential, blood, DNA, manipulated at the most fundamental level. Marat had been made part of that collective too, not the swarm, though it had tried, but a human hive that had its own principles. Yeah, so there's one kind of human ability to form this hive mind kind of thing. The swarm, or this more insect-like consciousness species, whatever you want to call it, is trying to inject itself into us and make us more like it. I'm going to read you this Peter Lavenda tweet that relates to this, in my opinion. He says, we need to stop thinking in terms of a UFO landing on the White House lawn. Wrong for many reasons. It's not thinking outside the box when there is no box. Imagine we wake up excited one day to share a strange dream and realize everyone on Earth has just had the same dream. Contact. And like that, I feel like is a very interesting thought experiment for people because that tells you that like when you talk about what contact with another form of consciousness could be or what avenues they would use to make contact or attempt to make contact it could be that something like a dream is the only way they have at showing themselves at all and an interesting element to this story and like what you just explained is that these people have this alteration for a multitude of reasons. Some people had it done to them. Some people appear to be born that way. Other people had some like weird experience where they ended up that way. But the common theme is that like they came close to something that I would say resembled like a microwave device. That's constantly the term I hear thrown around when they talk about the technology of UFOs and the effect of UFOs is that they say they leave like it almost gives the impression that it's something that's made of pure energy, if that's possible, like such a high amount of energy in a very small amount of space. And these people um, and I'm sure Gary Nolan examines them is that a lot of the people he's examined have symptoms of what is usually called Havana syndrome. And that's something that people were experiencing in our embassy in Havana, Cuba, is it seemed like they were getting bombarded with some sort of like microwave. You get what I'm saying? Like, it seems like yeah. the things that UFOs give off for whatever reason, leave similar effects that other people are experiencing that hadn't even necessarily seen UFOs, but it's a particular type of device. What was that term we used previously? Bilateral mimicry and how like, bidirectional, yeah. bidirectional mimicry. Like, I feel like this is another example of something that we're, we're talking about is like it, for them to try to explain why these sorts of things happen to people who come close to UFOs. I feel like it wouldn't be out of the question for groups interested in that research to also try to replicate whatever that technology is, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, Gary Nolan has said previously, like UFOs, he thinks it's a form of consciousness, like whatever, whatever we're seeing. And like everyone's like, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> and it, and it kind of makes sense. And there was another thing where Lou said, um, you know, what what does another dimension look like? And he's like, I can move forward, back, left, right, up or down. But what if I could go smaller and grow inward and basically shrink yourself? It's really interesting to think of it as a type of as a type of consciousness. And I think this whole thing is just going to be not what we think it is. And um, 
Yeah, it's like the tagline for uh, Monsters of California. It's like UFOs are not what we think they are kind of thing. Neil Tyson, as much shit as we give him, he gave my favorite example of higher dimensions cutting into lower and vice versa. And it was in Monsters, Inc. And he said that Monsters, Inc. did a great job of explaining what other dimensions looks like in a very rudimentary way. Like you're stepping into something that's even greater than like what do you get what I'm saying? Like uh, when they open their door to yeah. get into another world, that's like he said that was a very uh, like he like tipped his hat to them and said that that was a good way to explain that concept of higher dimensions. Well, I'm glad he's good for something. <laughs> For real. But yeah, dude, this is a good episode. Yeah, man. It was, uh, yeah, it's a good spot to leave it. I just want to thank everyone who supports the show on uh, our Patreon and the Discord. We're trying to be as active as possible in there uh, going forward. And um, everyone who's in there is, is pretty rad and it's chill and really smart people. I'm, I'm learning a lot from, from everyone in there. So that, that's about it for us. And uh, we will see you all next week. Thanks, guys. 